You're listening to Ship History Radio from the Steamship Historical Society of America. Through recording, preserving, and educating, our mission is to share the impact of engine-powered vessels, their crews, and their passengers with future generations. To learn more about our organization, visit sshsa.org. My name is Amy Bachari, and I'm the Education Director, and today we're going to be learning about student ships and speaking with Paul Klee. Hi, Paul. How are you today? I'm just fine. Thank you for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I was born in 1944. I was brought up uh, in Connecticut, but in my teenage years moved to New York City. And it was in New York City that I became quite fascinated by uh, the ships that were coming in and out of the, uh, then known as the North River, which was the Hudson River. And uh, that, uh, that uh, stayed with me my entire life. As a child or as a, as a young teenager, I took several trips across the Atlantic with my family and that I think also kindled my interest in ships. In fact, I know it kindled my interest in ships. So they work very well together as, uh, as, as child, uh, childhood and teenage interest of mine. Can you talk a little bit about when you decided to take a student ship and sort of what were the circumstances around that, maybe your college experience? I did the student sailings in 1962, and I was only 17. And I was between high school and, uh, and college. I was going to be an entering freshman. Uh, and I decided less about taking a student ship per se and more about wanting to go bicycling in a hustling group run by under the auspices of the National Student Association. And they offered the student sailing as a way of crossing the Atlantic for less than it would have cost, certainly by airplane in those days, and even by ship. So it was, it was just serendipitous that I ended up taking a student ship because, as I say, it was part of the offering. At that time, the Dutch government was running student sailings in the summertime using three Victory-class ships that had been built during the Second World War to carry uh, goods across the Atlantic for the war effort. And the Dutch government got hold of these ships after the war and originally used them to transport troops back from uh, the Indonesian, uh, Indonesia, which was then under, under the Dutch rule, and later decided to convert them into budget passenger liners. I think this occurred about 1951. And at that time, they were then put into service for mostly the immigrant trade to and from the Netherlands and uh, to not, not only North America, but, but even Australia and New Zealand, but principally across the North Atlantic. And in the summertime, it was profitable for them to use them for student sailings. So I was on the Groot Beer, which means Great Bear, and it had been renamed from its victory days, but it was called the Costa Rica Victory, built in 1944. 
And as a root beer, it carried about 850 passengers. And we were students mostly, plus professors who were doing stints abroad. Some of the students were going just for the summertime like myself. Others were clearly part of uh, of, uh, longer term studies abroad for the year, junior abroad kind of thing. And the professors were also joined by kind of a technical staff that dealt with, with programming and recreation and other activities. So they weren't necessarily academics, but they were people who might have been specialized in, in those particular areas. So did you already know people in that group or were you traveling alone and sort of meeting people for the first time? A close friend of mine from, from my Connecticut days, actually, and uh, he was also going into college uh, as a freshman later that, that year, uh, and I decided to do this together, and we joined this group of students, most of whom were uh, from the West Coast. And I can't remember overall how many people we were. I would guess about a dozen. So we met for the first time just before probably at some kind of an orientation session just before boarding or perhaps that was on board and uh, and traveled together on the group beer to Rotterdam. Then that was followed by, I think, a trip of about, I'm guessing, five or six weeks. And then we returned from Rotterdam back to New York. And in those days, Holland, uh, the ship was, was managed by Holland America Line but it was actually running under the banner of its own company. It's called Trans Ocean Steamship Company. And it was an entity of the Dutch government. So it was basically a government-run ship managed by Holland Americas. Can you talk a little bit about what life was like on board the ship? So let me give you my first impression on getting on the ship. And that I kind of, kind of kind of adds as a as a kind of overview of what the ship itself was like and shipboard experiences. This was, as I said, a converted Victory merchant ship. It was pretty basic, although as I had said earlier, it was rebuilt to carry passengers in 1951. So it was meant to be a passenger ship and not a, mer- a merchant ship, a freight carrying ship. But even so, it was pretty austere. I had traveled, as I mentioned earlier, as a boy across the Atlantic. My family on several occasions uh, lived abroad. We lived abroad. Uh, my father's work enabled us to do that. And in those days, and I'm talking now the, the early to late 50s, 1950s, depending on when we would go abroad, we traveled on rather sizable ocean liners. The French line Liberté, the SS United States, the Queen Elizabeth, the old Queen Elizabeth, and so forth. And even the smallest ship, the Flandre of the French line, even that at 20,000 some odd tons was double the size of the group beer. And the larger liners were 80,000 tons, 80,000 plus tons, like the Queen Elizabeth. So I can very distinctly recall arriving in Hoboken, and I might add by ferry, because in those days there was a regular ferry between uh, Lower Manhattan and the piers in Hoboken. 
and I can recall, I can recall seeing the ship that I was about to spend 10 days on and thinking, this is so small. It just seemed, it just seemed tiny to me. So my first impression was actually not a particularly favorable one because I had been spoiled by traveling on grand ocean liners. But once aboard, I think all of that changed. I was on ship and I loved, I had loved sailing as a kid in, uh, in both the early, early and late fifties. So I was, I felt at home the minute, the minute I was on board and it was a real ship and albeit it was extremely small, but nevertheless, uh, I was delighted to be aboard. There was a very, very extensive program of activities that were laid on for the students. I do recall availing myself of, of many, many opportunities to learn a little Dutch. I actually took a little basic Dutch lesson. There were travel lectures. There were lectures on, on political topics. In addition, there were recreation possibilities. I don't there wasn't much deck space on this ship, but we must have had shuffleboard. I assume that, that this was part of traveling by, by sea. We had the, the proverbial uh, horse racing, which was always part of a, a, an ocean crossing. It was just very, very well organized. Oh, there were concerts also because there were musicians on board. It sounds like it was a blast. Well, now we get to the non-organized part of the trip. And when you said it must have been a blast, it was really also a big party, as you can well imagine. I even remember that at three in the morning, we were in a cabin going over to Rotterdam. We were in a cabin that I think had eight, eight people in, in bunk beds. So we were two tiers of four. And at three in the morning, I remember suddenly there was a party going on from some other people or one of the people from our cabin brought back other students and people were, were partying. And I, even, even then, I still liked a good night's sleep, but I think I joined the party at that point because what could I do who was in my cabin? So that's kind of one, of the, one of the experiences that I recall. And that brings me to the topic of alcohol because, because I was only 17, and one of the things that really stood out in my mind was that I could go up to the bar and order a Heineken beer. It cost one guilder, and a guilder was 25 cents, and nobody asked any questions because we were at sea, and everyone was assumed to be, in those days, if you were 18, you were considered of age. And I remember what a thrill it was that I could just legally, at least on board the ship, order a beer. But uh, as I recall, that's kind of all that they sold. I mean, it was all pretty innocent, but uh, it, uh, there was a bar and, and, and in front of the bar was a little dance area. And among the other activities, of course, you, there was dancing in the evening. And I remember, don't laugh, twisting, doing the twist to Chubby Checker. Uh, to a Chubby Checker record because twisting was all the rage. It was probably, I'm trying to think if we probably also had, uh, the, the, the guys probably had Madras jackets because that was all part of it. I think I must have had one of those on that particular trip, though it's hard to imagine having them, stuffing them in saddlebags on a bicycle later on. But I, I, in those days, 
life was more formal and I don't think he would travel without a jacket and I probably had a mattress jacket too. But I do remember doing the twist. That was a kind of, that was a lot of fun. So we had a, we, we had a great time. Uh, I would say because it was such a small ship, there wasn't really great opportunity for exercise. I mean, there were a lot of obstructions because there were, it was built originally as a cargo ship and there just wasn't that much deck space. And they had added a deck in the conversion to a passenger liner in 1951. And that probably took some of the deck space that would have been both forward and aft in the days as a merchant liner. So there was, there was really, uh, it was pretty cramped. And there were, I think, a number of people who went eastbound. They had their 10 days at sea. It's a long time to cross the Atlantic on a, on a ship that's only like 9,600 tons. And they opted to return either by an, an express liner as they were known the big liners that could cross the Atlantic in five or six days and of course they had to pay extra for that or perhaps they flew home so it wasn't everybody who did the uh, the round trip but for me it was not a problem and incidentally the weather the ship had a reputation for rolling quite a bit and of course it would pitch up and down a little bit as well but it didn't roll that much because we had mostly calm weather on the eastbound voyage you talked about what the cabin was like, how you had to share the cabin with, you know, I guess seven other people. Can you talk a little bit, maybe describe some of the other places on the ship? Like what were, what did the other public rooms look like in the dining room and maybe what was the food like? Did that differ? I know you mentioned just the site of the ship and it being so much smaller than the previous ocean liners you had taken. Did those spaces also, were they a little smaller or less? I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. Uh, Yes. Less fancy, I yeah. guess, to put it nicely. I The cabin going over to Rotterdam on the eastbound voyage, as I said, held, I think, two tiers of, of bunks, of uh, well, four tiers, of, there were eight. And there would have been a couple of wash basins in the cabin, and that was all. It was pretty low down in the ship, and so we had we had a closed porthole, which in, meaning they just, you you, it couldn't be opened because it was too near the waterline. So it was pretty, pretty dark and in that sense, rather uninviting. But when you're 17, you know, I mean, it just, it just didn't matter. It just didn't matter. The price for that passage, I think, was around $150. That's what sticks in my mind because everything was separated when we took the uh, bicycling trip and there was the cost for the land and then the cost for the passage. On the return voyage, it was $175. And for that extra $25, my friend and I, and I think two other people uh, shared what was essentially a much more private cabin. And we were, we were higher up on the ship. So our porthole presumably looked out over the deck itself. It wasn't in the hull, as I recall, it was in the uh, superstructure. So that was much, much nicer. I do remember thinking, well, this is a lot better, and I wished that I had that going over, but I, it didn't at the time. You know, what you don't have, you don't miss, and then once you get used to something better, then you don't want to go back. <laughs> so I was happy to have have the better accommodation and I didn't miss it on the way over because I didn't, I don't, I don't think I even knew that it existed. 
And presumably, in retrospect, obviously some of the professors and some of the, the authors and musicians probably had similar cabins to the one that my friend and I shared with presumably one or other another person. As for public accommodations, well, you just can't compare it with the ocean liners. Uh, uh, there, it was it was a stair, and it was quite small. I mean, you're talking about a ship that that just didn't have the width, the breadth of the of the large liners, and so the rooms themselves weren't very wide. I do remember spending quite a lot of time in the ocean bar because it was also kind of the lounge and had the dance floor. It was reasonably light and airy. And that was a nice place to hang out. But of course, we were 850 people, and that one space was always quite crowded, I'm sure, day and night. I recall the theater was in the bowels of the ship, it's probably a former cargo hold, and also down, in, and, and it was quite small, and, and you did feel the motion of the ship down there much more than up top, even though that sounds counterintuitive because you would think the role would be more evident at the top. But I do remember that there was a lot of motion down in the, in the theater. And that's where I suppose many of the lectures would have been held and certainly movies. As for the dining room, which is a course where you spend a lot of time, it too is pretty far down. I mean, it, it, it wasn't in the bowels of the ship. Well, there wasn't, there weren't that many decks in the ship anyway. So when I say it was, it was probably about the same level as the cabin that we had going over to Rotterdam on that level. You could see the sea running outside and as the ship ran, ran, ran its, uh, its stately pace. By the way, it was about 16 knots. And to compare that with uh, the SS United States, which was the fastest ocean liner, uh, she could she could average uh, 30, 35 knots if necessary and was actually built to go faster for Navy specifications. So when you talk 16 knots, you're talking pretty slow. But then again, today, cruise ships don't go much faster e either anymore. But in those days, most ships would do uh, at least uh, for a six-day crossing, they would go, you know, 24 knots, say. And uh, so this was, that's why it took 10 days to, <laughs> to cross the North Atlantic. So the, the dining room itself was, again, pretty austere. And I know that we ate at, uh, at tables that, that were, I think, for either six or eight, eight people, which it's not uncommon today either. But they were, we were, I don't recall eating at a long, at a long table. I rem and I wrote in my, my little travel diary at the time that naturally uh, there, were, there was John, my friend, and myself. And, and they, they, they were, I think it was six other girls. And that was, that was, that was, uh, that was, that was nice, I remember. As for the fair itself uh, in the dining room, it was pretty meat and potatoes, basic. It was, there was plenty of it. And it was, but it wasn't, it was, it was just, it was pretty ordinary. And my notes on the menu for the gala night, or what they called the farewell dinner, they had shrimp, cocktail, as they called it, consomme croute, au po, fried Dutch steak with mushrooms, or you could order roast spring chicken, salad with cucumbers, dinner rolls, butter, farewell cake, fresh fruit, and coffee. So that was, there wasn't 
great choice. It was pretty obvious, uh, a pretty standardized menu, but we thought that was very nice. So that was that was life on board uh, the SS Group Beer, which means, by the way, Great Bear. It's one of the constellations. And the three ships that the Dutch government bought from the U.S. that were former victory ships were all named after constellations. There was the Zyder Cross, which was the Southern Cross in uh, translation, and it originally had been the Cranston Victory. And the other student ship uh, that was being run by the Dutch government was called the Waterman, and that means Aquarius. And it had originally been built as the La Grande Victory. Were there any other memorable stories you would want to share with us? Well, as a, as a just becoming adult, I really appreciated it. I had traveled across the Atlantic as a child, but this is the first time as a more or less adult uh, I could appreciate these things. So that was a very exciting to me that here we are, we've been traveling for at that point seven days across the Atlantic, seven, seven and a half days, and we've now made it to the other side. And there's England and there were sheep and I, I commented about that. And of course, fishing boats, which you always see as you are in the English Channel or in, in the environs of uh, Southern England. Apparently, and I mentioned that it was also in addition to an academic experience, it was very much a party experience. And apparently in the course of parting in the wee hours of the morning, someone, a student, had taken a life preserver and thrown it overboard. And the SS United States, I think, was leaving, well, was, was in the vicinity and had seen this life preserver and picked it up and immediately radioed the group beer to see what had happened and was there an emergency. And of course, there was no emergency. It was just some prankish, foolish incident. But the captain came, and this I do remember, the captain came on the PA system and admonished us in general that this is totally unacceptable behavior and it's putting not only this ship, but in this case, the SS United States was in the vicinity and they were going, they, they might have been preparing to go on a rescue mission or whatever. And, and I do remember that. You asked for about memorable experiences. That was a memorable experience. Going off the coast of, of, the, of, of the Isle of Wight, seeing land, and at the same time that was happening concurrently with this, with this incident which I, I didn't know about until a few hours later, because that's when the captain went on the PA system. Wow, that is so crazy that somebody would do that. And then there's the arrival itself in Rotterdam. So this would have been, it probably took about two days to get from, from well, a day. It was probably, it was certainly another night and a day, I think, before we arrived in Rotterdam early in the morning. But there was a band there and awaiting the arrival of the ship at the Holland America Line Pier in Rotterdam. And they played the Dutch national anthem. And I remember being very moved by that and the idea, gee, I really am in, in the Netherlands now. 
And I've left the United States and I've gone by ship and, and here I am on the other side and about to start, which for me was going to be a very exciting bicycling trip. I would say it was kind of the swan song for the student ships. And I went on my voyage in 1962. And I mentioned, I think my sister was the year before, it's 1961. And I think they stopped those voyages in 1963. Now there were still other student ships that were not necessarily converted, converted victory. They weren't converted victory ships. And one in particular stands out, it was called the Aurelia. And I have a, a friend uh, who went on the Aurelia uh, in the 1960s. And, but when the, between the immigrant trade, either drawing up to those particular countries where, where people wanted to immigrate to, uh, or, and then more, Importantly, the fact that once jets came on the scene, that pretty much put it in both to immigrants traveling by sea and, uh, of course, especially uh, passengers going abroad for the summer. Uh, it, that really all was starting to take place in the 1960s in a big way. I think the famous year when, when more people traveled by, by plane than ship was 1958 already. So. So by 1962, it was clear that this was not the way to go anymore. But there was still lots of passenger traffic across the North Atlantic and, and still, to some extent, elsewhere in the world. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't travel again until the France. That was in 1973. Yeah, so it was 11 years later. And subsequently took the QE2 and, and as a ship lover, I've been on... Uh, Queen Mary too, always, always line, what I still refer to as line voyages across the Atlantic from point A to point B, not, not a cruiser. I've done a few cruises kind of by default. I mean, it's not my, it's, they're, they're marketed position cruises as a way of, you know, crossing the Atlantic, but they're really cruises. So, you know, point to point, point to point really is only available now on the Queen Mary too. And that's, uh, that's something we've done a few times. So I'm a, I'm a ship lover and have been ever since, uh, ever since, as I say, I, well, I boarded the Liberté as a seven-year-old. And that's what got me started uh, with ships. At seven, I knew I was hooked. Do you have any last thoughts? It, in a sense, was a unique set of voyages. There was never anything I did subsequently that, that quite that quite matched those two student crossings over and back. For all the reasons that I mentioned, I mean, it was the only time I took a, a ship that really had been built for another purpose that had been, been converted. And it was the only time I found myself in, in a situation with, with many other students like myself, people of my own age where we participated and did, did a lot of things together. So the, the studentship was part of being a student, and part of student life. And the ship itself was, was, was a lovely experience. The ship experience was a good one. 
Thanks for tuning in to Ship History Radio. We hoped you enjoyed hearing about Paul Klee's experience on a student ship. Visit shiphistory.org ships to view more oral histories on this topic. This episode was produced by the Steamship Historical Society of America. You can learn more about our organization at sshsa.org.